0: I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
1: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 115 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most beautiful and talented young actresses in Hollywood, Lily Collins. The 27-year-old, who was born in England but raised in the U.S., has been acting in movies for the last eight years. At the outset of her career, many people knew her as singer Phil Collins' daughter. These days, many people know him as Lily Collins' dad. She made her big-screen debut as the daughter of the character played by Sandra Bullock in 2009's The Blind Side, which went on to receive a Best Picture Oscar nomination, and for which Bullock won the Best Actress Oscar. Collins subsequently starred in two 2011 films, playing a girl kidnapped by vampires in the horror flick Priest and Taylor Lautner's girlfriend in the thriller Abduction. But it was in 2012's Mirror, Mirror, a fresh take on the Snow White story in which Collins plays that iconic character that the actress truly came into her own. She subsequently made films that are of varying quality and that have achieved varying degrees of success. The 2012 comedy Stuck in Love the 2013 young adult literary adaptation The Mortal Instruments, City of Bones, and the 2014 rom-com Love, Rosie, to name just three. But few have doubted that she was bound for big things. That promise was realized this year in Rules Don't Apply, a romantic comedy written, directed, and produced by, and also starring, Warren Beatty, the legendary 79-year-old filmmaker who hadn't made a movie since the turn of the century. In it, Collins plays a young actress who comes to Hollywood in 1958 having been put under contract by the eccentric millionaire Howard Hughes, and who becomes romantically involved with her driver, against Hughes' strict orders, and then with Hughes himself. Not everyone is enamored with the film, but everyone I know has been charmed by Collins' performance. Over the course of a conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, recorded the day after Collins learned that she had been nominated for the Best Actress in a Musical or Comedy Golden Globe Award, She and I talk about the pros and cons of growing up and pursuing showbiz work as the daughter of a famous person, her auditions for the parts in Twilight and Snow White and the Huntsman that eventually went to Kristen Stewart, her evolving relationship with her most famous and distinguishing physical characteristic, her thick eyebrows, the highlights of her experiences working with Bullock, Julia Roberts, and Beatty, and what it was like joining an elite club of Beatty's leading ladies that includes the likes of Faye Dunaway. Julie Christie, Diane Keaton, Halle Berry, and of course, Annette Bening, who plays her mother in Rules Don't Apply. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation.
0: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when
1: you win? Golden Globe nominee, Lily Collins. Thank you for oh, doing this. Congratulations. Thank
0: you. It's the first time that I've heard it like that. <laughs> very cool.
1: It is. And we will get to the reasons for why that is the, the new name for you. But to begin with, we always ask first, where were you born and raised and what did or do your folks do for a living? You have a more interesting answer than some. <laughs> but
0: I was born in Guildford, West Sussex in England in the countryside, but moved to Los Angeles when I was five. So I'm very much both a Brit and an American, mm-hmm. and my mom is Jill Tabelman Collins, and she owns two stores, antique stores, of antiquities and oddities in Los Angeles, and she's like my best friend, and my dad is singer-songwriter Phil Collins.
1: Yes. <laughs> so, you came here when you were, you said five or five. six? Five, yeah. and. Generally speaking, what sort of a a kid were you growing up? I mean, were were you the popular pretty girl or the nerd or the what? What would you describe?
0: I was very much a scrappy little kid. I loved running around, getting my hands dirty, playing boys football when girls weren't really supposed to be on the team. (laughs) But I I also loved, you know, fairy tale princesses and running around the woods in England thinking that there were fairies everywhere. So I very much was uh, was kind of both. I, I enjoyed sports. I did every sport at school. Known to Mankind, and then I was also part of the drama department. And Starting uh, how
1: young? At what point did drama start?
0: Um, well, I was in a TV show when I was two in <laughs> England. <laughs> was
1: that by choice, or you I, just I think it then? was, you know, I
0: think <laughs> there was a mixture of both, but I was two years old, I did The Growing Pains in England. Yep. I don't think it's a direct version of the one here. It's very right. different, but with the same name. BBC, and I right? BBC, yep. And then uh, when I moved here when I was five, I started doing YADA, the Youth Academy of Dramatic Arts, here, Pretty much right when I moved over, I think I was six or seven and did multiple musicals and plays and played men and women, which I thought was so great at that age, (laughs) exposing me to all. And then I did plays in high school and I just, I've always loved being vocal and playing and playing dress up and taking people to another place through stories.
1: Now for a while though, it looked like the trajectory might be more journalism, right? Yeah. So how did, what was that about and, and how far did it go?
0: Well, I realized at 16, I had this (laughs) epiphany at 16 that I thought, okay, this is when I want to professionally start auditioning. And I told my mom and I said, I'm going to go out and try to find an agent and I want to do this seriously. But I needed to wait until I was at a point when I felt like I could take the rejection side because it's mainly what you're going through at the beginning. So I made that decision and I started going out on things and I started getting told no a lot. And I thought, you know what else I really love doing is I love reading and I love writing. And I've always loved, you know, English literature and all that was my favorite subject. So I was in England and I was reading a magazine geared towards kids my age. And I realized there was never an article written by someone my age. And I thought, well, that'd be a really cool idea. So I cold called editors at the back of the magazine. Some hung up on me. I never got through to it. what was the pitch? What was the pitch? Well, the pitch was, hey, I'm 15 years old. I'm a girl from Los Angeles. And I was born in England. Mm -hmm. I've always been interested in life overseas. And I think it'd be really interesting for other girls my age to read about life in LA and vice versa. Maybe you could have a British columnist Mm -hmm. fighting for the version in Los Angeles. And some of them hung up the phone. Some were (laughs) interested. Some said like, sorry, our editor is busy and basically just, you know, (laughs) never even got the opportunity. Two magazines said yes. One said under the stipulation that you talk about the celebrity upbringing, and I said, "That's exactly what I want to avoid." Mm-hmm. They later then hired someone else to do the exact same thing a year later.
1: Who was a celebrity also? Who who had, a, who had either? a who had
0: a who had a very prestigious background yeah. and was more on along the lines of shopping and, you know, all the uh, the things that I was probably not going to be talking about. Right. But then one met, editor said, come to London and show me your stuff. And I thought, oh, God, I don't even have any stuff to show yeah. her. So I went up to London and I showed her some school papers and reports and she hired me on the spot.
1: That's great. So
0: I started writing for magazines and I then took that to journalism in terms of on air. Yeah. And I started doing stuff for Access, Hollywood, MTV, Inter- E.T., E, and Nickelodeon.
1: And Nickelodeon was... Different in the sense that it was not in any way autobiographical. Now it was really reporting, covering politics, right? This
0: was covering politics, covering... I went to the conventions, and then I went to the inauguration, 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they had a Kids Pick the President campaign, and I got to go touring and talking to the delegates and the whip and go to the actual inauguration and go to some of the parties and watch them dance and just get to be a part of the whole movement, which was amazing because it was my first time voting as well. Yeah. So it was everything from politics to fashion, entertainment, you name it. And I just got to produce. I got to write. I got to be in front of the camera. And meanwhile, I was still auditioning.
1: So the time comes, you graduate high school. And at that point, what was your outlook for the future?
0: Well, I was raised in a household where, you know, college was encouraged, but it was never something that was the be-all and end-all. My mom always said, like, you have until you're 18 to figure out what it is you want to do and then actively pursue it. And if you don't know, then college, give college a try. And I, like in England, you take a gap year. Here I took about six months off and that's when I was able to do a lot with Nickelodeon. Mm -hmm. And I decided that I still wanted to continue pursuing acting, but I needed, I wanted to go to school. So I went to USC and as luck would have it. In my first semester, that's when I went and covered the presidential candidates.
1: (laughs) And you were majoring in broadcast And I was majoring in broadcast journalism
0: while working at the Annenberg TV news station interning, picking up phones. And then the next weekend, I'd be off to the races. And then I got my first movie. So I had to fly back and forth for the blind side to do finals at school and then go back to Atlanta. And it just became a whole lot of mess. And so
1: that school (laughs) went on hold.
0: So school went on hold because I finally was getting the jobs that I really wanted. And I knew that if I went back and I still would love to eventually, I'd go back for a different type of major.
1: Yeah. Now, before the blind side came through, let's just talk about, you mentioned a little bit about the auditioning scene where there is a lot of no for, for everybody. Is it correct that one of your first auditions though was for the part of Bella Swan in Twilight.
0: I did go out for Bella Swan. <laughs> was that I that did. was a,
1: a exciting? I'll one?
0: never forget that. Yeah, because I, they were they were books already, and I was very aware of the hype of the books. Obviously, they became something completely different after the movies. But yeah, it was one of my first. I remember the casting offices. I remember the casting director. I I still see her today, <laughs> and that room was filled with. If I could even look back and think, all the people that were in that room that are now. Big. Or not or acting. Not. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it's one of the two But right. there were men, there were girls, boys. Yeah, I remember sitting there thinking, oh, this is, this is good. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. It's going to be fine. <laughs> and remember the audition scene, and I think it just went horribly what wrong. What
1: scene did you have to
0: do? It was in the um, classroom, the science classroom, when she starts to, like, he smells her, and she <laughs> sees him smelling him, and then, like, it the explodes. And it was just this <laughs> awkward scene where there's not a lot much of dialogue, no. and you're just... It relies on your face a lot, you know. And and at that time, being green, I I there were like obvious things about acting that I just didn't really didn't resonate with me, and so I'm sure everything was way overly acted and completely ridiculous. And it was a great learning experience. So at least (laughs) I can say I went for it. Right, of course.
1: (laughs) Now with with some of that other stuff before you were established as somebody who deserved to be in the room on your own merits, did you get? crap about nepotism and things like that I've yeah. heard you talk about it a little bit before but
0: yeah I mean when I made the decision to meet with agents finally I met with one who kind of sat me down and we started talking and I was pitching the ideas I wanted to do for I wanted to be the youngest talk show host and this is my idea mm-hmm. and I remember him just looking at me and saying well what makes you so special I mean there's tons of cousins nephews aunts daughters sons brothers of famous <laughs> people like why don't you come back when you've done something and we'll have a conversation? And I was just like looking at him going, you don't get me at all. I don't think you've been listening. I have not once said okay. anything about that. Mm-hmm. And and I'm super proud of what my dad has done and what my last name entails, but that's not my path. And I think there has been a fair share of working against that based on people's perceptions. And But I never, I never wanted to get anywhere because of that. And I never wanted to give anyone an excuse to say that. Right. So... Sometimes things took me a little bit longer Mm -hmm. and at the end of the day also, yes, he's first and foremost an actor and a lot of people don't know that, but he's a musician and when it comes to acting, you're totally replaceable. I mean, if you don't bring something new to the plate and you have someone make a call for you, I mean, it's a completely different industry and it's it's like you're replaceable. Well, yeah, nobody, you you can't
1: actually fake it to make it no the you really life. can't
0: yeah. there comes a point at which you're gonna sink or swim right. and if you're relying alone on words or right. something like that then it's gonna it's gonna hurt probably well it's
1: all kind of a, a moot point at this point because I've heard he's now referred to as Lily Collins father <laughs> rather than your <laughs> Bill Collins pretty father. funny so anyway what was going on when you first heard about the blind side and then when you got the part as the daughter of Sandra Bullock's character
0: I had been auditioning, Ronna Kress cast that movie, and I had auditioned for her a couple times, and we'd had a lovely time together, but i had never been booked for anything. And I was just about to turn 20, and I was on the set of the new the new version of 90210. Mm-hmm. I was cast as Phoebe, the, the drunk prom the dr- queen <laughs> uh, c- competition. And I had two days on that and I was, I was spending my morning cause I shot in the morning of my scene where I am throwing up in the, in the bathroom <laughs> and I went back to my trailer and I had just turned 20 a week before and I got back to my trailer to a phone call saying you got it. I'd only gone in once. They said, you got it. And I went, well, it got, got what? And they said, well, you got the movie and Sandra Bullock's playing your mom. I was like, what? I, I didn't even, I don't think I even knew that wow. at the time. And then they said, and you're leaving in two weeks. And it was the craziest, I mean, I was still in my prom dress, <laughs> in my trailer, kind of right. screaming. And I thought, wow, this is the best delayed birthday present ever. And then I kind of got up and went to Atlanta.
1: Wow. So from from drunken prom queen to a star of a best picture, eventually best picture, Nominated movie is is a nice jump. Yeah, exactly.
0: You're like this is not normal. Right. Don't get used to this. Right. It's like, Okay.
1: And just to remind people, if they're you know at that time they probably didn't know who who you were watching that movie. You're the daughter of Sandra Bullock, the sister in a sense of this adopted football star who who comes into their home. Did you learn anything in particular from from your first movie and specifically from working with Sandra Bullock, who went went on to win the best actress Oscar for her performance
0: I know god she just set such a a high bar for me for my first movie in terms of how she treats everyone on set I mean it doesn't matter what department you're in it doesn't matter if you're a fellow actor she is just the coolest and she really can go to so many different places in the span of limited time I mean there were many times I just watch her and she could just start crying and having just laughed about something and I was like how do you how do you do that (laughs) and and she was just talking about you know sense memory and thinking about things and really channeling it and really focusing and and tuning everybody out because there's a lot of noise on a set and I'd never been on one so she really it was just her humility and her, her humanity and her Her grace that she carried herself with every day. And she was just fearless. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, she's a powerhouse. And she isn't afraid to voice her opinions, which I loved.
1: So between The Blind Side and Mirror, Mirror, which is the one that I would think you would probably call it the turning point. Yeah. There were three years in there. You were doing other movies. You were Taylor Lautner's girlfriend in Abduction. You were, I think, Priest was in that period uh, with Paul Bettany. What were those years like? Were you still were you content with how things were going or did you, were you always hoping to kick it up the next level? I think
0: I've always been a very passionate, hungry person, (laughs) but I am very grateful for the, for the time that it's taken now because I think things happen for a reason and a fast paced kind of elevation would be very different. I think I I really, really appreciate where I'm at because of the different steps that I've taken. Mm -hmm. And, All the movies that I've done have served their own purpose, and I've learned so many valuable things on each set. And thank goodness some of them were bigger sets and some were small because Mm -hmm. not as many people would know when things (laughs) went wrong. Or, you know, you could ask more questions when there aren't 10 people to go to to get information from them. You can just ask the director himself. But I think it's been really interesting to go from first movie being The Blind Side to then A Vampire priest movie, (laughs) to then abduction, and then to finally Snow White. It's like, I kept myself guessing. And I like that. You get to have new skills and and knife fights, and then you're (laughs) screaming off a train, and then you're running, and then you're a princess, and you sword fight, and you're in snow. I mean, I really was running the gamut of bizarre stories.
1: Absolutely. And and so now 2012 is the year of the Snow White movies, because it was Mirror Mirror and Snow White and the Huntsman. I think you also... Audition for that one as well?
0: I was going out for that one didn't quite make it to the audition okay so yeah. that
1: but you it all worked out because Mirror Mirror in a way I think is the one where where most people got to know about you and but this one also almost got away right I, I think at one point was it was it going to be somebody else?
0: I think it was supposed there was conversations about it being someone else and then I remember the day I went in and auditioned And Tarsem was running late. He couldn't make it to the audition. And I was about to fly off to my first, I think it was WonderCon for Priest. And I was told that he wasn't going to be there but to go in anyway. So I went in, did my thing, got back to my car, and I thought, Oh God! There's just I I I've, I've got to try again. There's something else I have to do. So I ran back and I knocked on the door and I said, "Just give me what I just I know you didn't give me any notes, but I just I feel I got to do one more." Yeah. And they were like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> and so I went back in and I did some stupid thing where I was like pretending to punch someone, and apparently my punch was so bad, but Tar Sam loved it. He thought, <laughs> "Oh yes, we can work with her." And so I did it, and they loved that I came back. And I went back to my car and I thought, you know what? At least I left it all on the line. Yeah. I did what I did, and then I got on a plane and flew I think it was the next day to WonderCon and got off the flight to a phone call saying well I guess it worked and I I I, it was it was April Fool's it was April 1st and I and I thought you guys are the worst I'm gonna fire all of you if this is true and of course then I broke down crying and I was like I'm gonna be this girl I've loved ever since I was little that's awesome yeah
1: and so the next four months was a lot of physical things
0: yeah a lot of training we did a lot of sword fighting army and i and that stunt department and my stunt double in in mirror mirror ended up being my stunt double on mortal instruments as well the same stunt department so it was super cool to get to learn all these different skills with them and but i loved fencing i we yeah army and i would go for hours and all that sword fencing it then amounts to what like (laughs) <laughs> Three minutes of film, you know, and you have right. these these tapes of us doing it over and over again. But again, something I'd never thought I'd ever yeah. be able to learn. And living in Montreal was amazing in the summer.
1: And yeah, so that was like 14 weeks of doing it in Montreal, right? But yeah. Tarsem said he was really impressed because you almost were innately protective of the character, right? I think at one point they had the word damn in the script, he said, and you yeah. nixed that.
0: I did, yeah, because we were doing the table read and I just thought... This is the more of the two Snow Whites. Obviously, it's, it's more family friendly. And if she is this pure, innocent, somewhat naive young girl, there's a time and a place. And I just don't think in order to make an audience gasp, you need to have that. Yeah. And I just thought if this is going to be my first opportunity and sticking my foot down and saying, you know what, <laughs> if I have a say, you don't have to like it. Mm-hmm. And then he accepted it. And I thought, oh, this is what it's like to have an idea and actually say it, because sometimes <laughs> we don't.
1: And then the other kind of big decision that I guess, I don't know if it was made as much as things just panned out the way they did, but your look in the film and the way it was promoted, there was, I think there was, it was not coincidentally modeled in some way off of Audrey Hepburn, right? Mm -hmm. Just the poster and the billboards, it was all that. And I wonder if that, what you made of all that, because I think part of it is maybe the eyebrows, right? She and you (laughs) both are quite known for that. But what did you make of the idea that Audrey would be a model?
0: Well, it was funny. I had done a photo shoot maybe a year before or or eight months before where I shot in Catalina for a cover of a magazine for England. And it was all based on Audrey. And I had fake bangs. And we did this whole Mm. fun shoot based on old photos of her. And I guess Tarsem, when he heard about me and he Googled or looked up pictures, he saw these pictures. And they really resonated with his idea of who she was as a person and her spirit not necessarily had to physically look like her but there was something that about audrey in general that emanated from within it was her smile it was the innate goodness mm-hmm. to her and when he met me and he just loved eyebrows, he, he thought, oh, you know, he, I forgot to mention he was late to the audition, but then decided he would meet up with me for coffee because he got the tape quickly on his iPhone or something and was like, oh, let's meet. Yeah. So I just remember sitting there and he's like, he just kept talking about my eyebrows <laughs> and he just loved them. He was fascinated right. by them and he's a very visual person. So I think once he got that look stuck in his head, it was Kind of, that was it. And I was beyond honored and thrilled to be even compared to someone who I've looked up to since I was little. So I just thought, well, if that's the version you want, then your eyebrows are here already. (laughs) Like, you can take them.
1: Well, for for the... Young women listening, and for any fashionistas who are listening, what's have just a quick aside? Have you always liked your eyebrows, or has that been an evolving relationship? No,
0: I I when I first moved here from England, I was so self conscious of them. You know, we moved to Los Angeles, and at that time, very thin arched brows were in. I was also mm. five or six years old, being pointed at because I had a different look and. I was very much teased for them. And I even went as far to just hack them away at one point. And my mom, I, th- I was so proud. And my mom was just horrified. She's <laughs> like, they're never going to grow back. And I, it's an insecurity that I didn't, you know, I was really unhappy with. But she had always taught me that the quirky things that make you different are what make you beautiful. And I wrote a book that comes out next yes. year. And a chapter is about that. It's like when you're young, the things that make you different are those things that you want to change the most about yourself. And when you're older, you're like, oh, God. If only I could have told myself back then, you know.
1: (laughs) So working on Mirror, Mirror, you got to work with another Oscar-winning actress, Julia Roberts. Yes. And for probably a lot of that 14-week period. And what, what was the takeaway from her?
0: Well, what was so fascinating, again, very vocal about asking questions like Sandra. But Julia, they would be questions about the lighting, the camera angle, the shot, how many more shots we were doing. How big is the dress in comparison to the shot? The, the timing of the lights changing. She, she asked a lot of really practical questions that were only going to better her understanding of where she stood in the frame to calm her down to perform. And there's just so many elements that I would never have thought to ask. I, at that point, would just get in front of the camera and perform every time. But if there's a way to know that there's going to be a close-up, or this is a wide shot. You don't have to spend it all now. Right. Or there were just practical questions. And, and I also loved that she brought her kids on set on occasion. And uh, it was the first time I really saw someone I admired as an actor be a mother first. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. to mix those two worlds and see how that happened. And see them experiencing it with mom, not yeah. an actor. And it proved to me, like with a lot of the other women I've worked with, that you can't have both. Yeah. I mean, it's really important to put your family first. And then there comes a point when... You want your career as well, and, and you can incorporate both and have your privacy. It's kind of amazing to see.
1: Yeah. Also in 2012, or coming out in 2012, I don't know if this was before or after Mara was stuck in love, mm-hmm. and then was The Mortal Instruments, City of Bones, which was inspired by a big literary franchise that is sort of along the lines of a young adult fantasy type thing along the lines of The Hunger Games or Divergent. You had actually been... Familiar with the books, right? Before the movie, yeah,
0: yeah. I I was a big fan of the books. I love gothic architecture. I love magic. You know, I was I was the biggest Harry Potter fan growing up. So anything to do with the other world, yeah, and and also this was very dark, and I liked that there was a dark quality and a sarcastic humor, yeah, a lot of irony to it.
1: And you were going to be playing a Clary. person, Clary, who yeah. descends from, I guess, a line of warriors who protect the world from demons and yes. all of this, and. million budget I guess was it was it bigger in your the way you saw it than even Mirror Mirror where
0: I think Mirror Mirror seemed bigger because the sets were just so immense and and Tar Sam is such a different director because he is he thinks big Yeah, everything is just big and vast and big production numbers and big lighting setups whereas Mortal it was also big and we know we shut down streets and I mean the the production was massive, but it still had a bit of a grittiness to it in the shooting and a and a, a personal quality, I guess to all the the, the cast members as well because we were a tight-knit group, really literally fighting off demons, but we were in it together in a in a more gritty environment. So, for as big as it was, it still felt a little more intimate. But it of course was a big budget thing that we thought was going to Become a big budget Multiple thing. Multiple sequels. <laughs> yeah.
1: Now, did you feel a sense of pressure with that? I mean, you're now going to be anchoring for the first time a, a potentially a franchise.
0: I, I did feel it a little bit because, you know, once I was cast, I, I didn't know how big the books were. I knew I liked them. But yeah. once I was cast, and then of course everyone has their opinions about it, mostly very supportive. Mm-hmm. But when it came time to cast the other characters and a lot of them got a lot of hate for them being cast, I thought, oh, Oh, okay. This is gonna be one of those. Yeah. And there's so many great moments in the book that you want to give justice to if you're gonna actually personify in a, in a movie. And as an actor, you know, you never wanna, you never wanna take a book and, and crucify mm-hmm. it. You really wanna pay homage to it. And luckily, Cassandra Clare was on board with us and was there on set a lot. But you just never know. I mean, fans would be waiting for hours on set and outside set, and it was the passion was was so great. But then when it comes out in theaters, it's, oh God, you know, are they going to like it? Are they not? And how can we improve for the sequel? And we were supposed to do the sequel yeah. and then it ended up going to TV, which also is a great medium for it because there's just so many more ways to tell the stories, you know, they can they could have gone into with the different episodes more than we could in two and a half hours.
1: And so the, the downside of not a level of performance, the box office that you'd hope for was that there weren't going to be more film sequels, but the upside I believe was that you now became available for right. <laughs> rules that don't apply. apply right?
0: Cause I met Warren right before I went off on the international press tour when I was still about to go train and live in in Toronto to do a sequel. And I said, I'm sorry, Mr. Beatty. I, <laughs> I I'm unavailable. Right. And, and, and it was just crazy to even have to say that, right. but I was, you know, my loyalties were to my next movie and as the world would have it, it, It folded and I had to come home, which then made me available for all the lunches and dinners (laughs) and multiple meetings and and awesome experiences with Warren and the team that allowed me to finally actually be available for the movie.
1: And just in between that period as well, I don't know if maybe you'd made this movie already, but Love, Rosie also came out. And that was interesting because I think this was a new challenge in the sense that you're playing somebody who ages 10 years, you know, just as a character evolved so much w- was that before you heard from warren
0: yes i shot love rosie before the mortal instruments press tour okay so i was in dublin for a couple months i got to be british in the film which was awesome go <laughs> right. back to my roots and i have a daughter in the movie and that was a beautiful experience being able to finally shoot in europe which i hadn't done before and then the mortal instruments i finished that and went straight into press for mortal And then we were going to go straight into the sequel, which is when I met Warren.
1: Right. Let's go back even a little bit further with Warren. What was the first inkling that Warren Beatty knew who you were, that you existed?
0: One of my dad's favorite movies was Heaven Can Wait. So I've known about Warren since I was little. And I had a friend three years before I got contacted, tell me about lunches and dinners. <laughs> uh, a, man, a young man who was being yeah. considered for the movie. And I thought, that sounds crazy. Mm-hmm. That sounds amazing. Like, what do I have to do to do that?
1: Right.
0: And then three years later, I'm in hair and makeup for a premiere of mine, and I get a call from my agent saying, F- I just got the craziest call. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. And he said, Warren Beatty just called me. And he said, Nick, why have I met every actress in Hollywood except this girl? And my agent's like, because she's unavailable. I told you that. And he's like, well, give her my number. I need her to call me. So he told me, here's his number. He wants right. you to call him. So I called the number, and he picked up. And right away, it was. I told you never to call me here at home. And I freaked out. I'm like, what? Oh my I'm sorry. I was told. And he goes, I'm kidding. Hi, Lily. And right away, I thought, oh, oh, this guy's cool. Okay, right. this is this is pretty surreal. Right. And he never brought the movie up. He just said he wanted to meet with me. And I said. I would love to, but I'm leaving on an international press tour. I I know that you have hour-long meetings, (laughs) uh, but I only have an hour tomorrow. And he said, okay, when and where? And so he came to my mom's house, and we sat. And my mom was freaking out, but she was, like, very (laughs) lovely. And she didn't ever, like, come in. And, you know, she said hello, and then that was it. And we never talked about the movie. We just talked about life for about an hour. I went away on my press tour, came back. Movie was canceled. And... Then a series of lunches and dinners and going over to the house and seeing Annette and the kids happened. And it wasn't until maybe the 4th or 5th that I actually was seated in the library with the doors closed (laughs) with post-it notes and the script and told to read it and give my two cents. And then he came in and wanted to grill me on all his (laughs) notes. So it was abnormal in every sense of the word.
1: So for you being courted in a sense by Warren must have felt in a in a way like what you were reading your character was going to be yep. going through, right? Yeah. It's a little surreal.
0: I think Warren is obviously a genius at this, but he really puts his actors in situations by design that mimic what their characters are going through. Sometimes I think he might even do it subconsciously, but there are too many occasions when Alden, Matthew, and I were going this is a little too close to home, and it's working on us because right. we're really frustrated right now, right. and so are our characters. Right. And But it was for the good of the movie, and you know Warren has studied under some of the most incredible mentors throughout the years, and he kept referencing Kazan, and just the way that things were done back then were so different, and mm-hmm. he wanted us to have a truly genuine experience.
1: And you refer to Alden. Alden is Alden Ehrenreich, who is your love interest in this movie, and the weirdest thing that I read in preparing for this was that While you and he did not know each other before this. Our moms did. Your mothers (laughs) did.
0: So weird. Um, You know, we, we existed in similar circles in Beverly Hills for a long time. We didn't go to the same school, but our schools had mutual friend groups. We had mutual friends. And our moms were both on the board of a couple different organizations in Beverly Hills, preservation and activities and they knew each other and they kept saying oh my god your son's got to meet my daughter oh my daughter's going to meet your son and I remember hearing about his name for so long and finally I knew he was involved in the movie and finally Warren said but do you want to meet Alden I'm like yeah it's been like six years <laughs> right? that I've been hearing about this guy so we finally met and it was like circles collided
1: right so when you were invited into the library to read the script, was that an offer to play the part or was that let me I know? I have
0: what... no idea. You didn't know? <laughs> I will never know at what moment Warren knew. He said, <laughs> he likes to say that it was a blink moment and within five seconds he knew for Alden and I. Well, he made Alden wait five years. <laughs> and for me, I think he is very specific about who he lets in, in terms of his material. Mm-hmm. So I think it was a definite, a definite moment for me, but I never knew and I never wanted to ask because I thought sometimes when you ask and you push someone pushes you away and I didn't want to give him any reason to make I didn't want to make him feel antsy in any way so I was in a again a really weird situation where I was supposed to do something and now I wasn't so I was available and I could just live out this bizarre timing of things and then the I I had to finally let him know that i was going away for christmas holidays and this is my return date and my agent said that nicely and he said well we just come back early because we start prep and he said <laughs> wait warren does that mean that she's doing the movie and warren said she knows she's doing the movie and i said wait no i don't and so i guess it was a surprise right? so you have to come back oh and i was like God. screaming going i guess i got it <laughs> But I'm like, that's the kind of movie that it's it's never going to be real until we're shooting. And even right, when we were right. shooting, we thought, is this really happening? Right. This is crazy.
1: Right. For somebody who hasn't yet seen the movie, can you possibly explain who you're playing and, and also why the movie might be called Roles Don't Apply?
0: I play Marla Mabry, who is a very religious young girl from Virginia who was brought over to Los Angeles by Howard Hughes, the eccentric billionaire, to become a Hollywood star. And she comes with her mother. And it's about her time in Hollywood with her driver, Frank, who works for Hughes, and with her long-awaited meetings with Hughes and the eccentricities that he puts her through that help define whether or not she reaches the Hollywood dream or not. And in those experiences with her driver, Frank, she admits to the insecurities that she's facing dealing with what it's like to be a woman at this time and what rules and regulations she thinks she needs to abide by to become famous or, or make it. And her driver tells her that those rules don't apply to her because she's special. Right. And so hence the song that my character sings to Alden's character as well as, as Howard Hughes is inspired by those words of wisdom from Frank and then in turn the movie because I think in no matter what you do, whether it's a Hollywood dream or, you know, whatever industry you're in, we put on ourselves most of the rules and regulations or limits to which we think we have to be as a human being and sometimes those rules just don't apply right. and, and when you think about the most famous respected entrepreneurs and inventors in our, in our history they were rule breakers yeah. and it just takes someone telling you that for you to realize it sometimes
1: absolutely and one thing I've got to ask you is I think we've spoken about this before but Warren's a Baptist He came to Hollywood in 1958 mm-hmm. Didn't work very much for a while when he got here. He wasn't a famous virgin, but mm-hmm. nevertheless, there were a lot of similarities here. And so the question that I have is, at any point, did you think or even say to Warren, wait a second, am I playing basically you?
0: Yeah, I mean, I definitely, when Warren started telling me about the movie, he he shared parts of his past and he really wanted Alden and I to understand the morale and the inner workings of the sexual puritanism of the 1950s because to our characters, it's second nature. They don't think about really the fact that they're having to struggle with the oversexualization in Hollywood, but their deep-set morals of where they come from. And to get that across, he shared experiences of, of his past and his upbringing. And so he, he very much was open about the fact that there were little bits of him in both of our characters. Yeah. And I think that helped a lot for me because you can read about these people as much mm-hmm. as you want and mine's based on an amalgamation of a bunch of women mm-hmm. from the period that will never know their names because they never became famous so to be able to hear though the, the mindset of someone of that period didn't matter if they were male or female it really helped me become someone who it was just second nature yeah. to
1: you said you'd seen some of warren's movies before working with him but was one of them splendor in the grass and the reason i ask is that this one seems like an obvious companion piece with that. Maybe it would be a great doubleheader because they're both dealing with what Warren has referred to as America's sexual puritanism. And I just wonder if that was one that you even wanted to consult. I mean, there have been people that have written about Rules Don't Apply who, who think that you look like Natalie Wood. Your character reminds <laughs> them of Natalie yeah. Wood. So just was that on your radar?
0: Definitely was I had seen it before we started working and was, you know, again, growing up in Los Angeles, Hollywood, you hear about the classics. and and I one of my best friends was a cinephile and just loved to to talk about film. So I was very much aware of its impact, but also rewatching it as an older person, it's you gain so much more from it in different ways. And he would also reference that movie and talk about Kazan and, and, and Natalie's persona and just the way that she was as an actress and just kind of offset as well. And he says that there are many similarities between the two. And it's interesting because some people really don't see it for some reason and some people really do. And it's in no way a follow-up, but it, it does hark on some similar notions and qualities about yearning and it's 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 kind of like a romeo and juliet yeah. right it's just a different different way of putting it and it's a different time period and it's that unrequited that tension and the wanting to or the nearly doing something and the audience just really wanting right. it to happen but the characters are so religiously <laughs> right. set but again that's very you know it's it's very different in today's world it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of great to have Splendor in the Grass to look back on, but also this movie to be done today because we are living in a society where technology is just at the the touch of your fingertips. You can share information, get information, and people put all of themselves out there Mm -hmm. all the time for everyone to see. And it's not as understood what it would be like to not have that or Mm -hmm. to not do something. It's like, well, why not? Well, (laughs) it wasn't an option (laughs) really back then. So the timing of how long it's taken him to make this movie almost is why it took so long
1: so aside from reading the script were there other ways that you could prepare i was wondering if there were any of these actual howard hughes recruits who are still around i had been lucky enough to interview a few like like jane russell when she was still alive mm, but wow. they made it so yeah you're, you're as you said this is a character who spoiler alert for various reasons does not so yeah was there somebody like that who you were tempted to ring up and see if they're still around
0: it's interesting. I, after the movie was made, I've been meeting a lot of people, which I'm like, God, I wish I'd talked to you before. Yeah. I wish I knew you existed. <laughs> I, you know, where were you? Because right. it's kind of like six degrees of separation. There's actually a lot of people from L.A. that have connections yeah. to people that were connected to him or even him.
1: And even Terry Moore, was, his wife, was, was his at the, yeah.
0: she came to one of the screenings, yeah. and I, I took a picture with her, and I, I, I thought, oh my God, I kind of wish that I had <laughs> talked to you. But, but Warren was very adamant that Alden and I bring ourselves to the characters, and you know he said that there were very specific things after having met. He likes to say everyone for these roles. <laughs> he learned what traits and things he wanted to see right away in, in the person to emulate the character. And I think he knew, I guess he knew right away, there were certain parts of ourselves that he wanted to bring to Marla and Frank. And he didn't want to overly focus on, on one person. And, you know, Warren himself had never met Howard Hughes. He's met, he likes to say he's met everyone who's met Howard right. Hughes. And he's studied up on him so much. But it's never going to be a biopic. So... If he never even met Mr. Hughes, but his aura is everything he's heard about him mm-hmm. and done research on, then that was almost, I can't speak for Alden, but my approach was, well, I, I'm i not going to be able to meet Audrey Hepburn or Catherine Hepburn or Elizabeth Taylor for this movie. So if I can just emulate what I see of theirs on screen mixed with a bit of modern for me, then that is going to be the closest that that I can physically come anyway. Because the second I start trying to mimic someone... I won't be true to me, Mm -hmm. and I also will be creating a a fake character, I think.
1: Warren, I believe, is big on improv. How did
0: you feel about that? Okay, improv is something (laughs) that I've always, always wanted to do. But in high school, it's like if you're not part of that crowd, it's not really encouraged. So I fell back a little bit and didn't really get into it and was quite afraid of it. But I loved that he was so open to throw the pages away. He was confusing at times. I mean, he'd say... I want it done word for word, verbatim. You know, you missed that word, and. And I'm like, oh, my God, okay. So we do it again. And then he'd say, why are you listening to me? I'm just I'm just the writer. And I'm, I'm, Alden and I would go, but you just said. He's like, I don't care what I just said. You're the actor. Throw him away. Do the scene your own way. And it confused me. Right. But I realized that, you know, Annette loved improv as well. And, and when you know your character so well inside and out, and you're just breathing and living in the moment, it almost doesn't matter what you say or if you say anything at mm-hmm. all. Because also when it comes to the editing process, he knows what vibe he wants. And sometimes there'll be a genius <laughs> or there'll be some line that you've changed that he can put in somewhere yeah, else that you together. wouldn't have gotten had you not done that entire improv before. Right. So there's a point to everything. And sometimes sometimes and Warren likes to say this, you know, he doesn't know everything. Mm-hmm. The writer is writing before casting or the director is is directing based on words that were written before the casting. Mm-hmm. And Warren, I think he even said in our Q&A that, you know, casting is plot. Mm-hmm. So once you've cast people, it's important to include them in the plot making, and sometimes that happens on the day.
1: So was he just doing tons of takes?
0: Sometimes. Yeah. I, I would have been warned, and I'd heard stories, <laughs> and I'd watched interviews. So I was expecting a lot more. But to be honest, there were nights where there were a lot of takes for certain scenes, but I now, even in the moment... More so now, though, I realize it was because he expected he expected more from us because he knew what we could do, and mm-hmm. by us I mean I am mainly in you know, Alden and I mm-hmm. because he believed in us. He wanted to push us. He knew what he wanted, and to have someone believe in you that much, to put you through that, to know you could come out of it stronger and alive and not break, I mean that's. I respect that, and I'm thankful because I probably wouldn't have given the same performance had I not had yeah. someone doing that to me, and it's it's important. It pushes you, and I want to do what I do because I'm terrified every day because that's when you grow the most.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, a couple of the scenes, if we can just talk about, I think somebody coming out of the movie who might then put this on because they want to learn more about you. I think they might be curious, for instance, about the sex scene. This is somebody yes. who's... Uh, <laughs> 52 years older than you might have been a little awkward.
0: It was bizarre reading that scene anyway because it's about 13 pages long. My character has never drank in her her life and she becomes extremely drunk, Mm -hmm. very emotional. She sings and plays the piano in the middle of this seduction scene that's funny. (laughs) I mean, there's a really weird humor to it that, you know, Warren is a genius in the way that he writes tonally Mm -hmm. because he can have something really dark. And also incorporate humor to it so it doesn't come across overly creepy or overly bizarre or inappropriate. I mean, sure, there are elements of that because of the the nature of the storyline, but by adding funny music or by adding the absurdity of it all, the eccentricities of this man, of Howard Hughes, just speak for themselves. So, you know, that scene was just, we shot it over a week. Over a week. Yes. The exteriors were at the Beverly Hills Hotel. The inside was recreated on a stage. And Warren wanted to give it the appropriate amount of time to um, (laughs) (laughs) really get in there and really make sure that it was done with a tone that he could edit because he wanted multiple versions of it, which I think is so smart, seeing as though that scene could go in so many different ways. And you could easily draw people out of the story. And, you know, the whole point is that Marla is heavily inebriated and would never have made that decision. Right. But there needs to be you can't hate her after that.
1: How about singing? Are you comfortable, happy singing in front of the world on a, in a
0: movie? I had done it on Mirror Mirror in the studio, and they used it as an end credit song. So I I'd, I'd experimented with it before, did musical theater growing up, but I've always wanted to do a musical movie. So when Warren mentioned, do you know how to sing or do you like singing? And I was like, where is this going? I didn't know Marla was a singer. Right. He's like, she's a songwriter, and I have this song. It's been written before a couple of years mm-hmm. ago it was written and I just I love that it would be live I thought the worst thing for me would be following along to a track because then it's such in, a, in these two emotional scenes mm-hmm. it's so important for her to live and breathe in the moment and to just be present and I didn't want to have to be thinking about 10 million things at once I'm already as Marla going through it so the good thing though is because she's a songwriter she was really nervous to sing this to Frank and to Howard so if my voice cracked as Lily or I messed up, it's totally fine <laughs> right. because Marla would have reacted right. the same exact way. But it was really beautiful and it was a very cool way to kind of incorporate and get used to what that might be like one And day. it turned
1: out very nicely And Critics' you. Choice nomination Thanks. for the yeah, song, right? Very, I mean, that's a cool. pretty nice thing. Pretty funny. So winding down here, I've got to ask you, this movie, when it was done and now it was going out to the world, what was it like for you to see it, for your friends and family to see it? Now more and more people are... Seeing it, what just, just your thoughts on the finished product and how it's been received.
0: Well, it, we shot it about two and a half years ago. So it really has been a while coming for me. And having worked since then, it's it kind of felt like when it comes out, it's going to be the right timing for it in some way or shape or form. I've got to think that because <laughs> Warren loves to take his time for reasons because he, he really is smart at what he does and, and he's a genius. So I had to give it up to the universe And I was really excited when finally I heard that we were going to be taking it to the world. And I, I I was very nervous because I, I really learned and grew a lot on this movie and I'm really proud of it. And I think it's a very specific type of movie. There's a lot in it for everyone, but it's also, it's very specific. It's, it's a, it's a ode to old Hollywood. It's it's different than today's day and age. I mean, the movie looks like it was shot in the Mm fifties as well. Caleb Deschanel is just an artist extraordinaire. And it's, I think such a beautiful film to watch. And I think it's one that you learn more each time you watch it, you get more from it and understand things better as time goes on. And to watch a film that someone's been making for that long is watching a labor of love. And so I'm thrilled that now it's finally out there. Mm-hmm. It's like a big sigh of relief. And for it to, you know, for it to have done for me, for it to, <laughs> to get a Golden Globe yeah, nomination. Come on, is, let's go. To get a Golden Globe nomination for it is something that, you know, I really could only ever dream of. And for me, I... I feel like I'm doing Marla proud. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing something that Marla never got to do. And I'm super, super proud.
1: And this is on top of New York Times critics pick and all the, you know, a lot of people are really into it. And so just looking ahead to 2017, can you, for people that are now new Lily mm-hmm. Collins fans, some movies are coming out. The book is coming out. Give a little tease of what's yeah. to
0: come. Well, my film, To the Bone, got into Sundance. So I'm going to Sundance cool. for the first time in January. Marty Knoxon directed and wrote it. A story about a young girl suffering with anorexia and about her battle to survive and what that what that entails. Super excited about that. And then I did a film called Okja with director Bong, yeah. who did Snowpiercer and the host, who is That's... absolutely awesome. We <laughs> shot that in South Korea last year, or this year, rather.
1: That's going out via Netflix. Uh,
0: yes, on Netflix. And then I did a film that was previously called The Clown. Now it's Halo of Stars directed and written by Anthony Lacero about a traveling circus and I play the lover of a clown and we <laughs> shot it in the Republic of Georgia which is cool. totally magical, yeah. so different and I start shooting The Last Tycoon, the Amazon TV series in January.
1: Well, wait a second,
0: what's that about? That's yes, awesome. is it based it's the on F. Scott Fitzgerald novel. Wow. Um, we did the pilot and it did the, whole Net- it did the whole Amazon, you know when Amazon and Netflix yeah, show yeah. their pilots in the public votes. And it's Matt Bomer, Kelsey Grammer, Rosemary DeWitt, and myself. Billy Ray is a showrunner. So it's nineteen thirties, I get to go back to period. Yeah, that's great. And do episodes for that as Celia Brady. And top it all off in March I have a book coming out, which Which I'm very excited.
1: Memoir type.
0: It's it's not a memoir because I'm 27 and I don't know everything <laughs> and everyone keeps saying, God, you wrote a memoir at 27? Yeah. <laughs> I go, no, these are the things I've learned up until now Great. about what it is to become a young woman and a lot of the taboo things that young girls don't like to talk about because they're either embarrassed or they feel alone in are things that I go into. And I've never had a problem being a conduit in conversations if it means putting myself out there in an awkward way to promote conversation among young women and make sure that they know they're not alone. So... It's called Unfiltered because in the past year and a half, I've become a lot more unfiltered. (laughs) And no shame, no regrets, just me.
1: And maybe directing in the future. And
0: I would love to direct in the future. Who knows? Maybe I've written a book, write write a screenplay. Yeah, turn it into a screenplay. (laughs) Definitely.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you very much for Thank you. We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability,